Well, let me introduce um, our guest, uh, if I might, the Reverend Will van der Hart, um, an associate minister now. Um, you've moved since you gave us your bio, I think, Will. Where, where are you on the on, on that collage of faces, by the way? Yeah, I'm, I'm ah. hopefully all up here. Ah, there you <laughs> yes, are, yes. Um, and uh, you've, you've moved, at, at, you were at HTB, now you're an associate minister, I think, at St. Dionysus. Is that how you pronounce yeah, that? Yeah, uh, St. Dionysus. It, it keeps getting, uh, people, my, my family keeps saying, oh, you've moved to St. Dionysus. I keep saying that's <laughs> the Greek god of drink and sex. So um, that's not exactly the best place to begin your ministry or to continue that's, it. Um, so it's, it's, St. Dionysus was a rather obscure saint, apparently, who um, I think we're the only church in the country who's, who carries his name. So um, I've moved there. I've been a priest in London for the last 16 years in Marlebone, in Harrow, then in HTB, and now in, in Fulham. Wonderful. Well, um, I, and I'd add to that, uh, Will, as well as saying a huge welcome to you and uh, for finding time to be with us. Um, it is such a pity uh, because I, I think our speakers do look forward to an evening at, at the club as well and dinner afterwards. And obviously it's a very stimulating environment to meet others and, and interact together. But um, I've said to a few of our speakers, we'd love to get you back and, and uh, have you in for dinner at, at some point. That, that, that would be great too. Um, I think the other thing I'd like to add uh, or underscore from your bio um, Will, is, is that about 15 years ago now, you founded uh, the Mind and Soul Foundation with um, a psychiatrist. Um, and you um, described that as a think tank, which is about uh, the interface between mental health and theology. Um, and I, I'd, I'd recommend everybody, if, if, you'd, if you'd like to find out more, you can just Google Mind and Soul. It comes up. It's a wonderful website. Not, not right now, obviously, but wonderful website. And there are lots of resources for churches and individuals in uh, the whole area of, of mental health and theology and a lot of practical resources, I might add. And, um, and, and Will and, um, oh, I've forgotten your co-author, Will. It's um, Dr. Rob Waller. Rob, and I actually know Rob quite quite well, but that's what happens as you get older. But uh, uh, Will and Rob are, are a great writing team. They, they've written a number of books, the Guilt Book, the Worry Book, the Perfectionism Book, all published by IVP or um, SPCK. Um, and the most, re isn't the most recent now is, is, the, is the belonging, the power, uh, the of, belonging. power of belonging. Yeah. So you've departed from calling things books. <laughs> well, it's nearly going to be the shame book, Lynn, but we thought we're not going to yeah. go there. No, no one wants to buy a shame book. So it's called the power of belonging. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was thinking, is no one going to tell these guys that, that, that psychology has had this great renaissance, this great blossoming of, of the positive side of mental health, hasn't it? as yeah, well absolutely. as the negative which we tend to get drawn to so it's it's wonderful that 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 you've 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 expanded into that area yeah. as well is that just out the power of belonging will uh yeah it came, well, it came out actually it's been out a year now yeah um and there's a there's a new one in the tank um called climbing down which we're just working on so yeah we keep writing and we've got two more we've got another two directors dr chichi abuaya uh, who's a psychiatrist and Dr. Kate Middleton, who's a psychologist. So the four of us together um, have been running, yeah, the Mind and Soul Foundation, which, is, which has been a great privilege. Wonderful, great. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to, to move on to our, our session tonight. We've, we've adapted the title, I think would be the right uh, word. It, it was Emotional Health, Flexible Working and the pressures of success. Um, inevitably, we felt it right um, to adapt that to the particular times that we're living in and the additional pressures of, of uh, the, the scale of change uh, and, and the uh, pressures brought about by, by the COVID pandemic. So um, we're, we're going to be orienting toward that, but still reflecting on the particularly the issues of mental health and, and work. Um, it was Will's preference that I interview him tonight rather than hand over uh, the platform to him. Um, I think many of you will know I, I'm, I'm in the trade myself. I was a psychiatrist, but I did say to Will, uh, they've heard plenty of me this lot. 
that that we're here we're here to hear you and uh, and we very much want you know to to draw on your experience, uh, Will. So welcome, and um, I I'd, I'd like if I might to kick off by we may break halfway through uh, and take one or two questions, but kick off at this point by asking where does the Van der Hart come from? Well, Van der Hart is um, from my dad, who's first generation Dutch. Uh, he actually um, bumped into my mum in Austria. Uh, she's from Bristol and uh, they got married, lived in Holland for five years. And then he moved over to work for a UK firm um, in Huntingdonshire. And they've been living in the same house ever since. So I'm, um, yeah, I've got Dutch roots. Um, actually was in, in Holland over the summer visiting family and actually got oh. locked down uh, in Holland. Well, I had to quarantine on the way out of Holland, which yeah. was the first. But yeah, um, yeah so I'm, I was born in Cambridge, um, count myself very much as an English person, but uh, yeah, have, have, a, have a strong Dutch heritage. And how did you get interested in this sphere of mental health? I mean, I mean, what I get asked this all the time, you know, and people always mm. assume that we're, we're really treating ourselves you, you know that, that we're only in it <laughs> to try and sort out our own problems so what about you Will? well I think I mean that's probably true for me um so I was a, a kind of very gung-ho um young ordinance at Wycliffe Hall I was passionate about evangelism and apologetics if you asked me when I was training for Christian ministry whether I'd end up developing a specialism around mental health I think I probably would have run pretty fast in the opposite direction. Um, weirdly, I've always had a sort of interest. I know my grandma um, struggled with depression. Um, it was kind of an unspoken area of life in our family. And she would sort of often take to her bed for sort of days at a time. And people would say, oh, grandma's having one of her turns, which was sort of polite for don't ask. Um, when I was training, I did a long placement in a senile dementia clinic. And as an evangelical Christian, that definitely got me asking questions about the mind and particularly about how my faith interrelated. I had some very interesting experiences of, 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 of praying the Lord's Prayer with people who couldn't speak and then finding that they would actually say the Lord's Prayer or helping to, you know, sing, sing hymns and actually people who were unable to communicate suddenly singing. So I, I saw... I saw some in, in very interesting, powerful things spiritually in the senile dementia clinic, which definitely got me more interested in, in mental well-being. Um, I think my first year of my curacy was very gung-ho. I was a student evangelist traveling around the city um, and very passionate about sharing the gospel at every opportunity. I definitely was working out my ministry and works, not in grace. And I think definitely suffered from imposter syndrome, this sort of feeling of how on earth did I, who gave me a dog collar and when are they going to take it away from me? Um, interestingly, supporting lots of clergy now, I find that imposter syndrome does exist. When the model is Jesus, it's hard to feel like you're ever going to match up. Um, and so that first year was really overextended. And then um, in the summer of my first year, after really burning the candle at every end, I got involved in the London bombings, uh, the 7-7 bombings. Um, my wife was going to a conference in the Ocker in Oxford and I walked her to Paddington Station and we lived just opposite Edgware Road Station. As I was walking back, the Edgware Road bomb went off um, and I put on my dog collar, um, went under the cordon uh, and offered our small hall as a sort of uh, a base for the police and emergency services and, and that was an initial stage is believed to be an electrical fault on the line um, but as the day unfolded it obviously turned into being the most serious incident um, since wartime Britain and um, I saw things I heard things lots of it secondhand which I wasn't prepared for um, and the ramifications of that were that as often is the case with trauma three months later I started struggling with acute anxiety um, and panic attacks, um, all sorts of psychological symptoms of anxiety, uh, but then that trans sort of transmuted into feelings of depression, thinking that I was losing my mind um, and I was relatively newly married. So I was suddenly experiencing a, a, a quite an acute experience of anxiety and 
an emotional health breakdown effectively. That, that was both you know, plumbing the depths of emotional struggle and also amazingly walking out of that an awareness of God calling me into that particular mission field. So um, my own experience and my own recovery had a big part to play in my sense of the Lord calling me to begin to speak about these issues. And, and Will, I, I'd, I'd love to, ha- to, to, to hear a bit about how you, where did you go? You see, I, you know, I see a lot of uh, pastors um, leading churches, particularly, um, but also leaders in other settings. They, they don't know where to go when, when this happens. So I mean, what, what was your journey there? So my experience was um, pretty painful, Glenn, if I'm honest. Um, you know, I, I was, you know, it's too much to say I was a shining light, but I was definitely one of the sort of young guns at Wycliffe who were kind of coming out the blocks. And um, young men tend to do violence to young men. And I think it was probably all looking at each other, sort of thinking who's going to be the next Billy Graham, uh, mm-hmm. all a bit grandiose. And then suddenly I stumbled at the first hurdle and I started getting calls from people saying, oh, I hear you've had a breakdown. Um, and I've, mm. I've got to say, there was a little bit of glee in a few too many of those voices. Um, uh, it was just, I mean, and, and I understand that. It was just a kind of sense of, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. And I, I, I spoke to my two senior pastors who were both amazing and really have loved me, uh, loved me through it. But they took quite atypical responses to this. One said, you're just tired. You just need to rest. So that was the kind of classic deny position of, of the time. You know, mental health doesn't really exist. You're just exhausted. Um, you need to just basically lie down for a week and then you'll be fine. My, my other, the associate minister, who's very experienced, very much spiritualized my experience. So his belief was that the devil had got into me. Now, if you get someone who's got an early classified anxiety disorder um, and is acutely anxious, telling them the devil had just got inside of them is pretty terrifying. Uh, so he was trying to exercise me. So effectively, my one minister was telling me that I was exhausted. My other minister was telling me that I was demonized. Meanwhile, I was desperately trying to work out what, that, what it meant to be having panic attack after panic attack or being sleepless or being deeply anxious or feeling depressed. I had a, a very, very generous and kind non-Christian doctor. Uh, he was, um, I think he, he was quite surprised I was a minister, but he was very non-judgmental about that reality. Um, he called me out of hours five or six times consecutively, which was, which was amazingly comforting. And he took a very healthy, integrated, medicalized approach to my recovery, which, which actually had significant benefits. I was blessed to know Rob Waller, the consultant psychiatrist from my days at Cambridge, and Rob personally helped me hugely uh, on that journey of recovery. But I think f- feeling a significant amount of mental health stigma during that period led me then to ask questions in my recovery of if I'm experiencing this as a priest, what must other priests be experiencing? And also what must other congregation members be experiencing? Mm-hmm. So I, I was leading I was a curate in a church of over a thousand people and I'd never met another person with a mental health problem before. So that meant one of two things, either I was the complete anomaly or there were a huge amount of people with mental health problems who were hiding. And so um, my, my sense was I needed to begin to talk about, only when I'd felt that I'd recovered sufficiently uh, because I didn't want it to be a vehicle for my own recovery. But it was interesting when I did start speaking about it, then I started getting calls from other leaders saying, you want to stop talking about mental health because people will start calling you the mental priest which um, now I quite like, but at the time, again, felt slightly terrifying. So, you know, I like to, I mean, I certainly sense that where we are as a church today, 15 years later, to where we were then are quite different positions, that actually there's, a, there's been a huge amount of progress in the way in which yeah. we're addressing issues of mental health. I'm really interested that, that, that you're painting a, a picture of, 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 a very integrated picture that in, in the sense that that you um everything about your ministry the past 15 years has to bring theology and 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 mental health psychology together to integrate them my experience a lot of folk feel go one way or the other they either over psychiatrize something and my faith has nothing to say about this a bit like your first 
pastoral overseer, you know, when, when you're going through this yourself, or they completely spiritualize it and see any contribution from mental health insights, psychological insights are somehow demonic or secular and has nothing to say. And there's this polarization, something about your experience said, no, no, it's got to be about, about integration. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I very much believe that God has created us mind, body and spirit. I mean, I think, you know, I think this, this idea that has been historically a very sort of Platonite view of the, of, of, of the body and the mind and these things are, are deeply se- segregated. Um, and this sort of this idea of Trinitarian monism came into my thinking quite early that actually mm. that, that the spirit and the mind and the body are, are sort of unified and God's at work in all of them. It seemed to me in my, from my more charismatic tradition that we had um, demonized the body in that model that actually that the body didn't matter anymore um, and actually we were all about the spirit of God but we'd lost sight of the fact that that Jesus became flesh and moved into our neighborhood that the incarnation is actually significant in itself um, and so wanting to have a kind of an incarnational theology where where our bodies were important was significant to me but then also recognizing that that our minds were part of that too not wanting to kind of create a a platonic uh, newtocracy where intelligence was important but where actually our minds were being redeemed by God and he was at work in our minds and so um, I felt that some of this was into you know an outworking of different theological positions on the self on the person some of it was historical in terms of what we've experienced through our theological history but but trying to to, to kind of create or to engage with a theology which addressed both mind, body and spirit was, was really significant to me because I sensed that how I was doing in my spirit had a very direct effect on how I was doing in my mind and how I was doing in my body was increasingly something which I was becoming aware of as, a, as an aspect of my mental health and also my spiritual well-being. It wasn't, you know, Paul, Paul, Paul says the body matters even though he says, you know, we can get too wrapped up in the body. He was still saying to the Galatian women, you know, don't, don't stop sleeping with your husbands. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, stop, don't stop engaging, you know, physically, because physical engagement is important. Um, your body is a significant, or don't, to the Corinthians, spend your body immorally, because your body is a significant, your bodies are important. And um, I found on my psychological recovery, walking was very important to me reducing caffeine was important to me having a healthy diet with low sugar was important to me um exercise helped me to think more clearly and help me feel refreshed a lot of the things in my body that i'd neglected i'd neglected not just because of my absence of mind but also because of my theological diminishment of my body hmm. and, and presumably um, this this creates room too for antidepressants or neuroscience insights into into mental health absolutely and you know again not to sort of labor the early point because i just believe the church has made so much progression here um i was offered antidepressants which i needed quite early on and my initial response was no 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 i couldn't possibly take drugs from my mind um when when i understood that an SSRI medication, a typical antidepressant medication, merely uh, stopped my synapses from reabsorbing neurotransmitters that I was already creating, I had a much better framework for understanding how these tablets worked and how these weren't, I, I was always given the idea, I think again, a Christian idea that sort of mind drugs gave you fake experiences and fake emotions, and it's far better to kind of live with the pain than deal with some sort of falsity when I understood that actually antidepressants could help me be more of myself rather than less of myself, then it became an important part of my journey. But I'd say stigma around uh, mental health medications and pharmacology exists today in aspects of the church, which is, you know, it's, it's very concerning. We still find, and we have about 4.7 million hits on our site a year now, uh, and I, from 26 different countries, if I was going to filter out the questions, I'd say probably 30% of all of the questions associate themselves either with, you know, is my, is my mental ill health a sign of spiritual demonization of some kind, or am I allowed to take antidepressant medication? Those kind of, 
account for probably a third of every inquiry um, that we receive because th these 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 stigmas still exist. I often ask people if they take aspirin or paracetamol, and they nearly always say yes. Um, when I tell them those drugs affect their minds, not their limbs, they they are relatively nonplussed. But if I say, well, if you took an, another drug that you know did a similar effect your mind is that a problem because you're already taking mind altering drugs right now you know think about mm. the consistency of your argument but, but i also ask people in terms of mental health stigma when we talk about serious and enduring mental health conditions the, the fact is you can't medicate demons and so where there's a lot of mental health stigma associated with disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder assumptions around the spiritual origins of these diseases, um, I think are undone by, by many medical arguments. That's not to say that, that there aren't spiritual aspects to mental health disorders, but again, the assumption that all serious and enduring mental health diseases are somehow a manifestation of a spiritual reality are kind of undone by the reality that you cannot feed a demon elanzapine and, and expect them to shut up. You know, Jesus, um, mm. Jesus healed people of demonic possession in the scriptures. It doesn't say anywhere that Jesus healed someone of schizophrenia, but people interpolate labels onto uh, the scriptures to make sense of the world in which they live. And unfortunately, I think that's a misreading of the Bible. Um, for me, the mm. Bible says Jesus healed people of, of demonic influence. That's exactly what he was doing. He wasn't doing something else with a different label. So doesn't it, I, I, yeah, go on. Doesn't it say um, that he healed people who were moonstruck, lunatics? At Matthew yeah, I, four, yeah. Yes, and, and I think that, yeah, there, there's a, <laughs> that's right. There's a sort of a, a reference there to something, to something different, but not, yeah. uh, you not, know, legion not necessarily wasn't, demonic. Yes, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and so you know, legion, legion was legion, and that was legion's mm -hmm. problem. But again, we, you know, I think one of the great challenges of working in this field has been dealing with these centuries-old issues of mental health stigma and assumptions. Um, and I, I'd say, my, as my in my work as a priest, I've seen I've seen people expressing some sort of supernatural uh, encounter who are perfectly healthy in mind and body, um, and I've equally seen people who, in fact, I'm encouraged deeply by uh, the ministry of many people who have serious mental health problems who are not less spiritual or sanctified despite their reality in terms of their mental health condition in fact the church itself is founded on so much mental health and charles spurgeon kind of greatest preacher of the of his, of his century of 20 years of quite chronic depression mother Teresa of 20th century, equally 20 years of depression. Martin Luther, father of the Reformation, suffered with obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress are based entirely on his experience of OCD. In his first book, Outlandish Thoughts or Painful Thoughts and Rituals is a kind of was not a good seller because it was just a, a, a dialogue of his mental ill health and Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of his mental health recovery. So, you know, Florence Nightingale, bipolar disorder, William Cooper wrote the only hymns, yeah. suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts. So, you know, it's, you'd have to go far back in history to see that the saints have struggled in the mind. Mm. But somewhere along the line, I think particularly in the last century, our assumptions around mental health in many churches have hardened uh, against the ability for those per people to play a full part in the community of the church. And for us as an organization, many people now say things like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of pray for every week, but I'm not allowed to participate until I recover. Well, what if my condition is lifelong? You know, how do I serve Christ now? Um, and that's, that's a massive challenge for people. And just before we move on to, on to the stress of COVID, would, would you say the journey you've been on the past 15 years since that uh, original experience will um has it led you to think in terms of you're having a theology of mental health now do you do you think yes in uh, yeah absolutely i do and I, and I wonder um 
I think what, what, I, what I kind of argue is that everyone has a theology of mental health. Um, the trouble is that sometimes we have an ill-informed theology of mental health. So um, there is, there is a, certainly a, a theology of, of sort of, you know, of spiritual um, influence, which is the idea that actually everything that's happened to me mentally is an outworking of some negative spiritual force. There is a there's a theology of medicalization which tends on its own to treat very much the physiological and psychological aspects of a person without addressing their spiritual needs. Um, but there's also a developing, I believe, theology of mental well-being. And when Jesus treats the lady with bleeding, I, I sort of see that manifest in scripture. Uh, and let me just briefly explain what I mean by this. But for me, the theology of, of mental well-being is a theology that addresses the ability of the person to flourish in full. And so the lady with bleeding comes to Jesus. She has a physiological problem and she receives healing from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't allow her to escape with only that healing. So Jesus in the context of the crowd calls her out. Now the reason could be either that Jesus wants to humiliate her in front of all of these men, or that Jesus has a much more significant healing in mind. And that for me is this healing, uh, this theology of, 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 of wellness. So by asking who touched him, he reveals her. And when he reveals her, he declares her healing. And as he declares the healing that she's already received, he restores her dignity, but he also restores her place in the temple courts because women weren't allowed into the temple who were ministrating. So this woman was a social outcast and she was also an outcast from the temple court where she could worship God. And so Jesus addresses not only her physical need, he also addresses her sociological need. That's for acceptance within the context of community. He also addresses her psychological need. That's for a need of restored dignity. And then he addresses her spiritual need. That's the need to reconnect with a community of faith. So for me, a theology of mental health is really a theology of human flourishing. And it's looking at all the ways in which God addresses our need in the context of healing. And so I, I kind of use that, if you like, as a framework to understanding so much more than asking whether or not we are in the remission of symptoms. And I believe very much that we can see a remission of symptoms or or we can see a fluctuation of symptoms but that doesn't negate our ability to find a broader healing and that is a healing in the community of faith the participation in worship and the restoration of our dignity um, and i think that's where psychiatrists and psychologists and priests and the community of faith can all work together rather than compartmentalizing a healing model into either you're psychologically well or you're psychologically ill or monopolizing a particular perspective as you've been saying that it's all physical or it's all um spiritual and, and so on yeah that's a great vision and what a wonderful picture um, i'm just going to pause for a moment and just draw everybody's attention if you go to the to the bottom there there is the chat button you should be able to see and if you go to the chat button, um, you will see a little welcome everyone to tonight's meeting of the National Club. Please type your question here. Remember to give your name. So as we go into the next portion, if you could, um, questions that have already sprung to mind, pop them in there. And, and I'd be really encourage you, please, to be as interactive as possible, because Will is itching to, um, to have some uh, conversation Q&A with us. Um, but moving on to COVID, uh, um, uh, Will, what 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 do you believe has has been the most um, I guess pernicious effect of this pandemic on emotional health generally? Well, absolutely, as you know better than I do, that isolation is a, a huge um, challenge to people's emotional well-being. Um, Rob and I wrote the power of belonging because we were trying to make sense of you like of attachment theory, which is used know very uh, broadly in education and psychology and um, I've always felt that attachment theory Bowlby's theory that we have you know fourfold attachment um, has always missed something it's like starting at B rather than starting at A uh, and there's a theory before attachment theory which is which is Baumeister and Leary's theory of belongingness and this is this idea that every person 
has a, you know, a desire for a minimum quality of lasting interpersonal relationship. Effectively, we're created for connection. And you know, I, I think for me as a Christian, this makes sense of our whole being, that actually we've been created by God to be in communion with God and others. And if you're like Adam and Eve are, are, are created into a place of belonging, they had no question about whether they belonged or not. They knew that they belonged in that environment. That environment to them was home. I think that belongingness is based on the idea that we connect to one another um, and that we're attached as a result of that connection. And COVID, for many people, I mean, I think we, Rick Warren would say we're all in the same storm. We're all in very different boats. But for many people who have, if you like, been on the life rafts of COVID, it's not been the physical disease that's been the greatest challenge for most people. It's been the isolation and that sense that actually it's breaking apart our sense of belonging. And whilst I believe wholeheartedly in social distancing and wearing masks, there's no doubt that the loss of personal facial connection and certainly the loss of the experience of the embrace have hugely diminished us psychologically. And so my work, probably your work in coronavirus has been um, to try and create connection uh, at times, you know, using quite weak tools. For example, Zoom has been shown, study in Stanford University in America, to be a low empathy tool. You're actually better off phoning someone if you want to experience empathy and connection than you are using Zoom. The reason being that as humans, we depend on visual clues as our sort of prior eye automated model. So if I can see something, I, I'm dominated by my sense of sight. If I close my eyes, I use other senses which, are, which create stronger empathy. So if I'm going to smell a rose, you might try this at home, you close your eyes and smell it because when you close your eyes, you experience an olfactory experience which is greater when your eyes are closed than when they're open. Equally, if you hug a friend or if you kiss your wife or husband, you often close your eyes because the sensory experience is more powerful. And so Zoom diminishes our sensory experience of connection, which we hear through tone of voice because we depend on the eyes and then we realize no one in this group of 60 people are actually looking at us and they can't see us, we can't find eye contact. So there are aspects of COVID specifically, which mean the margins of life are diminished, the connection in life is diminished and the tools which we're using actively break down our feelings of belonging, connection, attachment and intimacy. And all of those things I think are essential lifebloods for feeling well emotionally. Gosh, that is such a rich uh, set of insights there, Will. Um, how do you account for the fact that there's some data that in the early phase of lockdown, uh, emotional health amongst teenagers actually improved for a while and then deteriorated again? And certainly I've met, I have a number of friends, I've rung them up and I've said, how are you getting on? You know, wanting to comfort them in their isolation. And they're in paradise, <laughs> in paradise, in lockdown with no responsibilities. And, you know, uh, so how would you accommodate that into, into that perspective? So as I said at the beginning, I mean, obviously we're all in the same storm, we're all in different boats, and there's no doubt that some people's boats were a lot more com comfortable than others. Um, I think w one of the things that's concerned to me is that, that I think the state of ill mental health amongst young people was reaching a kind of catastrophic proportion prior to lockdown. And if lockdown was an improvement on young people's mental health in this society, then that says something about the state of mental ill health amongst young people in this country prior to lockdown. Mm. So there's a great concern I have there. I mean, the UK is the capital of self-harm in Europe. Manchester is the capital city of self-harm in Europe. We have higher levels of self-harm amongst young people than any other European country. And our CAM service, as much as it is incredible, admirable and wonderful, uh, it lacks the resources it needs to function well, as, as you know better than I. And so... That there is, um, you know, if we're going from uh, zero to, to, to sort of plus one half, then we've still got a long way to go before we reach a scale of goodness. Uh, th there are, though, other things at play. And one is that, that some young people were spending more time within the family home and were actually in, experiencing the family community more effectively than they had done other times. So to play into my first point, 
children within the context of families at points where experience greater proximity to family and parenting than they would do in normal circumstances. And so there were definite upsides for some young people. But, but I think the key thing here is about how short-lived that, that, uh, that experience was. So we talk about the phases of collective trauma response as a way of measuring trauma experience. And this is a relatively universal scale. And we have the impact phase where there's the event, and then we move quickly into the heroic phase. And in, and in COVID lockdown one, this is when everyone was baking sourdough bread and making sort of rainbow signs for the NHS and doing hundreds of exercise videos a day on Zoom with your Joe Wicks. Um, but it lasted about a month or six weeks before we started moving into the disillusionment phase. And so, you know, if there was an upswing in young people's mental health, it was probably noticeable within the first couple of months. But the disillusionment phase has been a pretty steady phase since then. Um, and we have been on an adrenal drip and we're not designed to experience low level anxiety for that length of time. And then we obviously move out of disillusionment into the rebuilding phase, which for us was sort of September and October. But again, we're back into the disillusionment phase with the resurgence of the disease. Ultimately, we're supposed to be moving towards the wiser living phase, but that's really three or four years down the line from now. So, you know, the phase of collective trauma response would say everyone, bar people particularly living alone or specifically vulnerable to the disease itself, were experiencing something positive within the heroic phase. I saw this, I worked on the Grenfell site for a couple of years as part of a multidisciplinary mental health team. And we saw very similar things in the Grenfell site with the first month of everyone giving donations and building community gardens and being invested in the um, Grenfell community and, and, and sort of trying to parachute in healing and then went into this very deep disillusionment phase. And actually all of the people with heroic activity pretty much left the area and healing was left down to the people who were really invested. So this is quite a common theme. But it's an anomaly, I'd say. And we've got a huge amount of work to do to support young people's mental health coming out of this into recovery. And I'd say, with caution, a vaccine is, is only the tip of the iceberg of COVID recovery because we need to build community and confidence again, particularly amongst young people. Mm. And I guess you would identify a number of toxic um adversaries of of that of of, of um, opponents of, of that vision that hope uh, one being the individualistic culture that we were all inhabiting before covid came along you know which is an individualistic culture isn't it i wonder whether you what you know what are the things in our culture that you'd see as make that are going to make it especially hard to um, you know, recover some of this ground, particularly having a focus on young people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's a great concern to me is that is that we've we we were in an individuated society anyway, where there's a very strong mentality of finding success for the sake of finding security. You know, I, I think the idea was that you know, I, I see this a lot doing some coaching in the city. The idea is, well, I'm not really enjoying my job, but I've got to work in order that I can be secure. Um, my, my model is inverse. I'm saying, well, look, let's find security and then we're more likely to find success. Because in my experience of working with people over the last uh, couple of decades has been that some of the most successful people are also the most insecure. That success doesn't breed security, success often breeds insecurity. Um, that individuated culture leaves people in an echo chamber where they are disconnected and see others as competitors rather than colleagues. And the danger of homeworking is homeworking maybe provides biological security, but homeworking provides more individuated experience. Yeah. So what happens is businesses find that they've got greater productivity. So I was looking at a ocean um, digital ocean study on tech entrepreneurs, which, which, which was written well before COVID times. And they found that 80% of people who were self-employed digital tech entrepreneurs were overworking and were close to burnout. Now, they were largely well remunerated for their work, and yet the lack of boundaries, but particularly the lack of social margin, meant that the individuation was damaging their emotional and mental health. Mm. If, if you're in the office, social norms that are prescribed by society at large in an unconscious level lead you to have conversations with people around the coffee machine. 
or to, to have a chat with people at other desks. And the employer might not like the level of conversation that takes place, but ultimately good HR managers know that that's good for business. That keeps people employed because we aren't just employed for the pay packet. We're employed for the community, but home working individuates us to a level where we no longer have margin and we no longer have community in the workplace. And so we both believe that we can work harder for success and therefore receive security by winning rather than communing. Mm. And we have less impetus to engage with margin because we can be highly efficient. I can spend eight hours on Zoom meetings straight doing business and, and only get up to use the loo and have a sandwich. And even that I can do with my screen turned off. So, you know, the, the, there are great dangers facing our society. You know, if you believe in the power of belonging, that's based on a prior community, which you ex experience life within. And my concern is, are we going to be living in bubbles behind face masks, not just in pandemic times, but because it's expedient to beyond pandemic times. You know, if the economic model proves significant enough, then I fear that we'll be levered into this kind of model of efficiency working, and that will have hugely detrimental effects on our mental health on a sociological level, as well as on a psychological level. And uh, Will, just being practical for a moment, help us all understand, but unpack a bit more, why achievement, you, you know, getting where you wanted to be, what, why doesn't that do the trick then? What, why doesn't that produce the goods that our, our culture promises, you know, the success culture, once, once you've made it, you're there. So <laughs> well, I mean, well, why a, doesn't that work, Will? It's such a faulty economy, Glenn. You know, I mean, as a Christian leader, it's just like, where your treasure is your heart is also and ultimately if we put our treasure in things that we acquire on earth we're missing out on what we've been created for which is a relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords you know i know who i am because i know whose i am ultimately mm. our world is chasing us a weak and poor substitute you know jesus said you fool you know this very night your life will be taken from you if we store up our identity in barns our identity will be stripped away from us. I mean, I, I've, I've coached people who are extremely successful and, and many of them haven't faith. And I hear the same retorts over and over again. Uh, one on the train w from a match at Twickenham, which went along the lines of, will they never tell you that when you get to the top, there's just nothing there? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, that's profound. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Well, there's just nothing there. There's just stress. Or there's people who want something that you've got. You know, I, I, found, I find that the illusion is that everyone who's walking up the ladder believes that at the top of the ladder, you're going to find something great. And everyone who's got to the top of the ladder is there saying, no, don't come up here. But everyone on the ladder is saying, oh, you're just saying that because you don't want us to get what you've got. And so the kind of cycle of appropriation of goods is, you know, is, 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 a, is an eternal delusion. And it's one I believe is, is a spiritual reality for many people, which we need to break. Um, what, but why aren't we very good at breaking it, do you think, Will? Because I, I, see, I see it in my own heart. I see Christian leaders, pastors all the time who are riven with the kind of status anxiety that, that you're describing, except it's played out in a different forum. You know, it, it's, it's, it's going on a conference and how many people you have on your alpha course versus them. Or is your church growing or is it steady? Or, you know, in the pecking order of uh, talks, are you an evening speaker or are you just get to do the seminars or are you a main stage speaker? You know, people are, are really, if they're honest, if we're honest, these things are addictive. And, oh, and how, does the how does the gospel break that? Because it rolls off the tongue. We're loved by Christ, you see, unconditionally. Yeah, yeah. But what, where, where, where isn't it getting through? Sure. I mean, just like you, Glyn, I've the, probably the, I've seen the worst manifestations of this in the context of the church, where it's a different commodity that's being traded. You know, it's, it's influence rather than finance. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I mean, I, I found it very interesting the, the idea of shadow mission. That actually, if you think about, it, I, I always believe that we all have a true mission given to us by God, and then a shadow mission that we use to to, to if you like, boost our fragile and faulty self-identity. 
And you know, I, Moses had this in spades. You know, he his true mission was to leave the lead the people of Israel, the lost sheep, into the into the promised land, but actually he ended up leading the Midian sheep around the desert. You know, and our shadow mission is only over five degrees away from our true mission. So I could I can preach Christ crucified for the sake of my true mission, which is to make Jesus known, or I can preach Christ crucified in order that people might think that Will Van der Hart is a good communicator. And, and, and we, when we don't acknowledge our shadow mission, we're often bent that five degrees towards it. Hmm. And, you know, if I was going to be so bold as to offer God an 11th commandment, it would be know thyself. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but you know, if there was one, it would be know thyself. And I think that the danger is that the work of, of reflection um, is, is, a, is, is, is a lost work in the 21st century. Mm. That, you know, particularly within the evangelical church, we've had this idea that actually that introspection is navel gazing. And actually the, the, the need of the gospel is so great in the world that we've got to get off our backsides and start preaching the good news. Now, I believe that wholeheartedly, but I also believe that in the process of doing that work, we have to become aware of ourselves and of our great need. Now, on one level, I don't believe that we'll ever see the full restoration of our identity in Christ until we're with him in glory. But I do believe that the revelation of those areas of vulnerability in me to myself can lead me to a space whereby I can I can appraise myself and augment my reality. I can challenge and appraise my activity in order that I will not succumb to the need to constantly prop up my weak and vulnerable self-image. So you know, this is the great danger of our lives in in leadership. Everyone on this call that um, we, we we are vulnerable to uh, potentially boosting our self-esteem by feeding us our, our shadow mission um, and, and normally the shadow mission is overcome by a false self so the false self is an identity which is neither really rejected neither really or accepted but we hide behind that to be rewarded by the goods of our shadow mission so people will say oh oh you're you know, it, the, for the vicar it's hanging around by the door at the end of a talk to try and kind of hear you know what people are saying about the sermon <laughs> um, and, and so somehow then you know gleaning the goods of that when actually if we're rooted again this is typical and maybe it's it's traditional teaching about having an identity rooted in jesus but this all comes back to this idea of knowing that we belong to god in fullness and having the security of the knowledge of that relationship rather than trying to build an image or an ego that serves us rather than serves him mm. Will, that is so rich. Um, we could talk for forever. Um, I've, I'm going to move on to the, the third section, a briefer section, which is one or two practical uh, issues about, um, you know, how we can support our emotional well-being through through this time. Will, just want to take a couple of questions that that we've had in. I'm going to combine them actually because they're from Clive Mills and and um, Esther Taj. Thank you, Clive and Esther, but both essentially saying um and you get this all the time i'd imagine will how do you advise a christian who needs the kind of integrated help that you're talking about both a medical approach um and the insights the ministry the pastoral ministry uh of somebody who can uh maybe pray or develop um pastoral insights that may be missed by the GP and so on. So how do you how do you get these two together? I think that's what those questions. Are yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really helpful question. And I, I would say um, we sometimes have to find those things for ourselves. If you like, it's sometimes going to the fridge, getting out the milk, getting out the eggs and getting out the bacon. You, you've got to do it and then you can make the cooked breakfast. Um, in, in terms of trying to find a healthy psychological model, it, that serves the spiritual, the pastoral, and and the pharmacological, um, uh, maybe the, you know, as well as the the, 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 the medicalised view. I, I think it's very important to recognise that you know it's great to find a Christian psychiatrist, but honestly, what you want is a good psychiatrist, not not a Christian psychiatrist. It's lovely to have a Christian doctor, but you just need a good doctor, not a Christian doctor. 
Um, and then looking at um, whether or not your pastor or priest has the skills to be able to support you or maybe as someone within the context of a congregation. Uh, and then it's also about relationships with others. I think when we're going through a season of mental Ill health, it's easy to turn everything into a conversation around medical, the medical side of psychological struggle without recognizing that just talking about your cat or having a walk around the block can be really good for you. So taking an integrated view, and if you like taking little bits out of the fridge for you, which maybe don't in themselves integrate, but within you do integrate, I would say that there isn't a one-stop shop for your psychological and pastoral recovery. There is a, there, but, but you are a place which God wants to invest into, and he can bring many people alongside you for that work. And I think there's, there's, plenty of scripture for that you know to back that up about how together as the body of christ different aspects of the body serve different function and that those different function together uh, can make the most significant and empowering difference into others lives and so i would say try and take all aspects of that rather than looking for one answer and again you know a classic mistake to make that folk make is the idea that I'm just going to do one thing with one person and I'd say take wise counsel from a number of different positions but don't just take one position try and take it, let them be integrated in you and certainly when I was practicing as, as a psychiatrist if there was a pastor involved and my, my heart would break that often there wasn't you know that somehow the whole thing had been um, um, offered over to, to the psychiatric model. And I said, look, Pastor, if there was, I'd love to get them in sometimes, in, in with the three of us, so that we could make sure we're all on the same page and work in that more integrated way, which is what you're saying. I don't want to do his work, he doesn't do my work, but we can both have something to, to say. Will, can I, um, just before we move on to the um, third part just say everybody we're going to finish soon but any more questions please just just put in a few more just for us to finish with that would be great i want to ask you as we tie up will to give us some practical tips on how we safeguard our own emotional well-being during this um period particularly those of us who are managing remote working or you know odd strange working conditions and maybe the isolated sort of conditions that you describe Thanks, thanks, Lynn. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, on the relational side of things, I'd say have a, have a minimum of a half an hour telephone call with your screen off with someone you care about every day. Um, and this is, this is a discipline. I mean, all, all this stuff, I mean, when, when, when God speaks to Cain, he says, sin is crunch, crouching at your door, but you must master it. Um, and, you know, there is mastery involved in the process of self-care. And, and I don't think it's necessarily sin, but it's certainly breakdown is scratching at, all, at many of our doors unless we, we take some mastery over our work for self-care. When Jesus invites us to love our neighbours ourselves, I think we'd be doing a disservice if we actually loved our neighbours we love ourselves in many cases. Uh, because we don't love ourselves well enough to be actually offering anything positive to our neighbour. And so loving our neighbour well means being able to understand that self-care is a significant and important principle for us. So I would say have a, have a minimum uh, output working of a, a screen off conversation with a friend or, or a family member every day if you're living alone. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, routine is really significant um, and being disciplined in your routine means actually containing your work um, within the hours that you might normally work. And, I know immediately people say, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. And it's largely about the discipline of accessibility. If we make ourselves available, we will work more than we need. Uh, I would say, how is, you know, Spurgeon said um, that prayer should be the key to the day and the lock to the night. Now, is prayer the key to your day? And is it the lock to your night? If it isn't, there's a significant issue of margin around your day. Are you taking a lunch break that is at least 40 minutes and actually stretching your body and allowing your body to recover from the exhaustions of, of this kind of work? And, and what are you making? I think creativity is a core aspect of the human spirit. Um, if you don't know what to make, 
have a look on YouTube and you'll find lots of ideas. But I, I mean, I appeal to chaps, go and get an Airfix model, buy them on, buy on a mod from a model shop. You used to make them when you were a child. Get yourself a B-52 bomber or a Spitfire and some glue and a craft knife and make that model, okay? You will love it. It will fill you with joy. And it doesn't matter where you put it afterwards, but make the model. Or you, know, you might be a woman who likes Airfix, by all means, but you, you might be like you my wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might be like my wife who, who likes to knit or crochet or, or paint or draw or whatever it is that you like to do. But do something creative every day because God has created you to create because he is a creator. And as you mirror his creative spirit, you'll find life. You'll find a sense of well-being. Um, be fruitful. And Zoom is not a place for fruitfulness, largely. But try and find space for creativity every day. And, and find some space to reflect. I, I, find that I, I find that God is the great psychologist. And in the Bible, he asks the five most important questions we can ask ourselves every day. They are, they're the first five questions he asks mankind. Where are you in Genesis 3.9? Who told you that you were naked? Genesis 3.11. What have you done? Genesis 3.13. Why are you angry? Genesis 4.6. And where is your brother? Genesis 4.9. They are the five most important questions you could ask yourself every day. They are the tools for human reflection because we're asking the orientation question. Where am I in my day? Where am I today? Like, how am I doing in myself? Who told you? That's the communication question. Who's speaking into my life right now? Is God speaking? Is the scripture speaking? Are friends speaking? Are family speaking? Who's speaking to me right now? Then we've got the activity question. What have I done? What have I achieved? You know, we see that in the Psalms and Ecclesiastes so much. Well, you know, what have I done? What have I actually achieved here? And then why are you angry? That's the emotions question. If you can be angry, you can be happy. It's inverse the same emotion. Like, what, where's anger in your life right now? Such a powerful and important question for us to ask ourselves. And then there's the relating question. Where is your brother? What supports have you got? Where is your sister? What supports are there in your life today? You know, I find when I let God's questions examine my heart i can reflect really well and grow every day and it's like a way of taking the temperature for life if i ask god's questions into my own heart so if you're struggling for a way of reflecting then just read those passages from genesis and you'll find that you've got the great psychologist doing a little bit work on your mind and heart and he's he's the greatest guide for all of these things Wonderful. Um, Will, do you have any comment? The BBC were reporting a study recently about the benefits of going on an all walk, AWE walks. Did you see that? At all? I didn't see it, Glenn. Uh, I didn't see it. Well, What's it stand for? Well, um, it's going out 15 minutes once a week and uh, practicing, cultivating awe just noticing oh, great, the awe. world around you. Awe, awesome. yes, AWE. Say, yeah. And uh, it, it's one of the decentering experiences the whole point is to get yourself out of the center of the yeah. story you're still an important part of it but it's a story now that's bigger than you because you have cultivated that sense of being part of a a story that's bigger than than, than just glenn harrison or or you know and I, one of the things about lockdown it can lock us down into that self that intense sense of self-preoccupation if we're not careful i guess too I, I find gratitude really revolutionizes my mental health for sure. Yeah. And um, I, I went on, in, I do Instagram, which is not everyone's cup of tea, but I made a commitment that I would, I would take a picture of something that I was thankful for every day. So for the last four years, I've taken one photo a day just to say thank you for whatever it is. It's normally a view of the River Thames or a bridge or something, but I just take that photograph every day to say thank you. Um, and I find that it just gives me a little bit of joy every day. And interestingly, it started giving a lot of other people a little bit of joy too, but it's just a reminder of saying, actually, when we, when we give thanks, it's, it, it changes us more than it changes the recipient of our gratitude. And it's another decentering process. Yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah. a great tip. One photo a day, something we're 
thankful yeah, for and to give thanks yeah uh, let's uh, flood yeah. the internet with gratitude i just think the Amen. internet's a place of so much pain and accusation how about yeah. we all flood it with one just moment of gratitude to god thank you thank you for this incredible view or this incredible friend or this incredible walk you know just to say thank you it, it's it's revolutionary last question uh will from esther taj um and David uh, and Jim, I'm just going to leave yours hanging, if I might. Um, and and normally I'd say, do see Will afterwards, but we can't do that uh, today. But uh, Esther asks, what can we do practically to help our local churches become more mental health friendly communities? Very briefly, Will. We've talked really, about ourselves. Yeah, it's such what an can important we do question. to our churches? I mean, we've um, we developed a mental health access pack for churches a couple of years ago, which is quite a big resource now. Um, and I recommend just passing that on to the priest uh, or pastor involved and saying, look, have you read this? We can, we can offer support as, a, as an organization. We're trying to help churches become mental health friendly. And so I do pass on the Minusoft Foundation resources. They're all free. And uh, we'd love to see more churches really get mental health friendly. Um, if you are a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health nurse, or someone with an interest, we always suggest, how about setting up a group in the church of people who work in the area? And we found as a first step, when church, when, when a person takes the initiative and gathers the counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and mental health practitioners, and just had a prayer meeting once a month around issues of mental and emotional health, it nearly always is the stone in the pond that ripples out and transforms the whole experience of church for people so typically psychiatrists i find you know they tend to keep hide their light under a bushel glen and uh, just um avoid you know avoid sharing their incredible wisdom in the church context so tr try and bring them in connect together and rather than making a deposition maybe pray and then invite the priest or pastor in to one of your meetings and then ha have a gentle conversation around mental health. I think pastors are overworked and overpressurized. And the worst thing would be if they felt that they had to somehow then create this great ministry um, overnight. But if they mm. believe that, they're, that you're for them and that you can contribute something to them, then they're nearly always so delighted. And I'm sure that that will have a, a profound impact on your setting. So start by praying together bring in your priest, share the resources and see what God does. I think this is on God's heart. So I think it's something that you'll find that your church will begin to move on. Well, um, well, thank you so much. We could go on a long time. Uh, thank you to everybody who's stayed with this. And I know it's hard work uh, on Zoom, but I, I think, Will, you've done a wonderful job in keeping us engaged tonight. And uh, we're in your debt. Um, I I, I think it's been a real privilege to draw on, on this treasure trove of wisdom that you've accumulated and experienced over the past 15, 20 years, Will. Um, but I, I think the thing that came through to me was, was your pastor's heart. Um, that I, I think you will minister, if all of us go away with remembering that, you are a place that God wants to invest in. If we each take away that sense, we're a place that God wants to invest in. And he has all kinds of people ready to help in that. I, I think that'll be something we can all take away. But, but I, I think the other, issue, the other uh, thing besides your, your, your great experiences is, is that you've modeled to us too, the kind of self-awareness that you're calling the church to, to develop uh, much more. And um, I, 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 I think it's been wonderful for us to be able to benefit from the way that you've um, taken that early experience of trauma and pain and redeemed it, not only in a way that has brought health benefits for you, but, but which has brought benefits, grace into the lives of so many other people. And that's a, a wonderful stimulus and example for us, I think. So thank you so very much. And uh, we'd love to get you back again and uh, hear more from you, Will. Um, can I just say to everybody else, the, um, the uh, evening has been recorded, so it will be going up um, on the website um, in a little while once we've figured out all the me mechanics of, of that, because this will be a new thing for us. 
I think it only um, uh, remains for me to close in prayer, if I might, and just remind you about the next meeting. Um, Lucy, just while I'm praying, could you just look up the exact date when that is and the title, please? I forgot to, to do it, but uh, let's all just pray together, can, can we? Lord God, we want to thank you so much for your great grace and favour on us. And we want to thank you for Will's ministry. And we pray that it will be fruitful, not only through what he shared with us tonight, but beyond in his work in his own local church and conferences and through the Mind and Soul website. And we bless you and thank you, Lord, so much for all that he and Rob have done with the others involved in that ministry and we want to bless it and pray that you'll prosper it and use it to build up your people and uh, lord we ask these things in jesus name amen amen